The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wonder if what you are doing today is setting your company up for success in the future, especially as we emerge from the pandemic? To discuss those issues, to answer those questions, Robert Tucker. Robert, welcome to the show. Great to be on, Joel. Hey, you have a very impressive roster, register, uh, CV background of uh, materials here. Futurist, founding leader of global innovation uh, movement. You've traveled, uh, you've spoken in 53 countries, written seven books. You've spoken to 200 of the Fortune 500, former adjunct professor, ABC, NBC, PBS, CNBC. I mean, come on, you've been everywhere. So uh, just so that our listeners know, you know, today's not your first day on the job, right? Not my first rodeo. <laughs> it's not your first rodeo, right? There you go. So, you know, listen, and, and by the way, uh, you know, you and I know each other a long time. We, we've debated, we banter, which is fun. So we know each other very well. So, hey, listen, well, thanks very much. So in your experience, are most CEOs of companies, are, are executive uh, leaders of companies doing a good job of positioning themselves today for the new realities of tomorrow, whatever tomorrow is, whether it's post-pandemic or something else? Well, first of all, Joel, it's great to be on. And yes, we are friends as well as colleagues and uh, have a history together. I think that uh, that's an open question. You know, our CEO's positioning, I think they were sort of uh, deer in the headlights like all of us were with the pandemic. It came out of left field. It blindsided us. And just making sure our employees are safe, making sure that our supply chains are functioning, all of those kind of uh, details that had to be done when this thing broke out in February and March uh, kind of distracted us and got us off the major things that we need to be focused on. But what I'm seeing now is, is a return to that by the, at least the smartest CEOs. You mean, they're, you mean they're returning, they got derailed into some tactical stuff, but now they're getting back right. into their strategic focus. I talked to a CEO that did have a mid-sized company here in Santa Barbara 
where I live. And uh, he said, Robert, you know, things are changing so fast. He's in IT support infrastructure for mid-sized companies. Chris Churban is his name. He said, we're doing strategic planning three times a year to keep up with the pace of change. We used to do it once a year, right? And it was a, just a process, a procedure we went through. Didn't take us very long. Now we're doing it three times a year. And I'm hearing that across the board. What's the big picture? What's the environment going to look like in the next three to six months? And are we competing on ideas? You know, you did that white paper recently. I just dug it. It was, I've read it twice, three times. And one of the things you said in there, I want to get this in the, in the record here, is companies compete on their ideas. And that's why I want to talk with you, if we can, about strategic focus, strategic foresight, if you will, and also innovation and how you run your brain as a CEO. Because if you're not coming up with the ideas, is what I'm saying to audiences, you know, where are the ideas coming from to fuel your future? Well, I mean, don't, uh, you know, don't all the people in the, in the company, they bring ideas to the table and then you kind of corral the best ones? I mean, what do you, sure. what do you see? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking to the guy that wrote Innovation is Everybody's Business. Yeah, but there you go. ultimately, the CEO is responsible for the pipeline of ideas, right? If that pipeline is clogged up, if that pipeline is non-existent, in other words, if the CEO is going around or the leader, let's just say, to broaden it, if the leader is going around saying, look, I don't want your ideas, get to work. We've got tactical things, we've got firefighting we've got to do today, don't want your ideas. Guess what you'll get? You'll get a culture where you don't get, the, you don't hear about those ideas. People will be taking a shower, driving down the highway, and they'll have this billion-dollar idea for you, and they will, they will hold it. They will not give it to you. They will not surface it because they're afraid, basically. You know, there's a lot of reasons that people don't ask questions. It could either be that the CEO, you know, kind of doesn't encourage people to contribute, or when they do contribute, they get kind of tyrannical and beat people down, and that's not a good thing either. So, how do you navigate those environments? How do you become a leader who encourages everybody to participate so you don't miss one of those billion-dollar ideas? <laughs> well, if I'm known for anything, I think I'm known for the, the statement that you need a process for innovation. You've got a process for everything else. Why not a process for innovation? But you go in most companies, small, medium, midsize, and large and you ask them, how do you do innovation? How do you accomplish innovation in the company? And you will get someone stammering around and, and very unsure of that in most cases. I mean, there are these innovation vanguard companies that we write about, that I speak about, brag on, if you will, that have developed the process. But um, one of the, the key components of that, Joel, is like we were saying earlier, you do involve your people. I mean, yes, 90-something percent of their time is is going to be devoted to routine tasks and routine activities and tactical rather than strategic. But you want everybody to have that mindset that, that they could be the, the vessel of a, of a billion-dollar idea in the company. Could, could you share a little bit about how some companies uh, navigate this whole innovation cycle, you know, what they do or, you know, what some of the better ones are that, that you've seen? Well... Let me uh, just give you a, a couple of bars on uh, Procter & Gamble, their innovation initiative, their process for innovation. Uh, CEO there uh, a couple number of years ago said, you know, 
Robert, when we, uh, we first started out on our innovation journey, innovation was over there in the R&D labs, over there, on the, <laughs> over there you know, in, and, uh, in Cincinnati. He said, today, everyone is responsible for innovation. And so I, I see that in these companies that are really getting ahead in this environment, they're the companies that are taking the time to answer the question that employees have, whether they articulate or not, which is, if I have an idea, what do you want me to do with it? If I have an idea, what am I expected to do with it? So that's number one. And then the other thing is, will that idea be punished or rewarded? And I don't mean with monetary rewards, because that can get sticky, as you know, from, from uh, Daniel Pink's research. But I think what, what really motivates people to, to take the time to develop their ideas, to shape their ideas and submit their ideas and talk up their ideas is that they are going to be incentivized in that respect rather than disincentivized. So many companies without really being conscious of it or aware of it, disincentivize innovation or innovative activity or anything that's not just the routine, but you and I know that increasingly over the next decade that uh, routine activities will give way to software, give way to automation, right? Be shipped yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And what is left is really a person's eye skills, innovation skills, right? So the people that are on this call no doubt have incredible competencies, uh, they have technical skills, they have social skills, they have uh, people skills, they have um, you know, skills in their functional areas, so functional skills. But what we don't spend a lot of time on yet is thinking about, well, what are these I skills? And I began asking myself that question when a number of years ago, CEOs were coming up to me. Right? I remember one specific uh, food industry CEO, he said, Backstage, I was about to address his top 200 people or so from all over, the, all over North America. And he said, you know, Robert, uh, you, you know, I, I read your book and uh, you talk about these Steve Jobs type people and we've got good people out there. These are salt of the earth people and they're competent as hell, but damn, they just, they, they wait for me to tell them what to do. You know, they wait for me to, to be the uh, energizer bunny here. They'll do it, you know, if I just tell them. And he said, things are changing so rapidly. This is before COVID. This is before the pandemic, right? Uh, things are changing so rapidly. I, I can't have all the ideas. And uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of what led me to, to write this book. So I went out and interviewed 40. I, I always do interviews. That's my, that's my MO, Joel. And, and probably yours too. So, Robert, you know, Robert, this, uh, the CEO that, that had the problem getting people to come forward with their ideas. Uh, right. Was, do you think that was the CEO's problem? I mean, is that something that, he, that that person owned up to and said, you know, it must be my fault? Or, or how did they solve the problem? What happened? Well, it was a Midwestern-based company and probably just a lot of um, very compatible, warm-hearted people. And ironically, in the world that we're living in, you don't want too many warm-hearted people finishing each other's sentences, right? Because if you and I agree on the way the world works, we agree. And that's the thing I love about our uh, brainstorming group, our uh, mastermind group, is that we can disagree, right, from time to time. And uh, 
I, I was thinking of the, the Netflix dude just the other day when you were saying that, because he says, you know, everybody's going for this work from home motif and that's the wave of the future. He says, but I don't like it. He says, and I'll tell you why. He said, um, people don't disagree. They don't creatively argue to get to the best idea on Zoom. Everything is just like pleasant and that's not how you get to excellence. Yeah, you know, boy, that, that's a great concept. And, you know, that really speaks loud and clear to the, uh, the political problems that we have as a society is that we've lost our ability to debate, uh, dive deep, you know, think, consider, evaluate. And that transcends politics because it goes into business. It goes into uh, all kinds of thinking. And, and I think that uh, as we cut off those abilities, uh, we really we, we suffer. But, but go back to that part where you have just a whole bunch of, uh, you know, friendly, nice people that get along perfectly at work and they're all kind of the same personality. Right. Uh, I think you're right. I think it starts with the hiring. They've got to hire different kinds of people which then I guess speaks to a diversity message, not necessarily diversity of what you look like, but diversity of ideas and, and, and backgrounds and, and different kinds of people think in different kinds of ways. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I've written a lot on this, this particular topic. Diversity is great. And what you need is great facilitation to make that diversity harmonize. And uh, it's not totally difficult, but you definitely do need a harmonizer because you know, you take a group of engineers that are working on a, an innovation project, right? Uh, it, it does kind of throw a wrench in the works for them if there's too much diversity or if the group is too large. Our sweet spot, my research shows over the last 30 years of working with groups that are five to seven people. Smaller groups are better. People, you know, will put political appointees on the I mean, they don't call themselves that, but, you know, we got to have Charlie in there because he'd be offended or because, you know, if, if he's not on the team, he's going to be upset. No, I tell team leaders, Joel, push back. The results that you're going to be measured on demand that you have a cohesive team, not so much that they're finishing each other's sentences, but that you don't have any deadwood that you don't have any non-producers on there. I've seen too many uh, politically motivated kind of teams. Like, I mean, you know, the, the number of stories, don't get me started. But if I may, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the problems that we're having in our political environment. And that sort of led me to think about all the environments that I have had the pleasure of being in. So many different companies, right? Each culture is like a family. It, it is unique, right? And uh, as Tolstoy said, you know, all happy families are alike and all unhappy families are uh, different in their own way. <laughs> uh, I think that was the, the quote. But what I'm getting to is that there's this sort of tendency toward magical thinking, you know, and if we say something like that, that'll offend the CEO's point of view or the, his worldview or her worldview. And when you get into innovation, you are going to step on toes like that. That's why there's so much humor in my sessions because you got to get people lightened up. You got to get them playing with the clay. You get them, I get them designing shopping carts and, and better mouse traps. And I mean, you know, if you walk through that room or you were to walk by that conference room, you'd hear a lot of 
hooping and hollering and howling, and then they can't wait to do the report outs, you know, to show people what, what they came up with. And well, listen, by, by definition, innovation means something's going to be different tomorrow than it is today. Right. And, and you know, and, and so it's not only is it just going to be different, like a new color post-it notes, and we call that innovation, but it will add value. And that's my basic definition of innovation, that it creates new value. And that's right up your alley with, with all your work and all that you uh, uh, speak about at your conference. Yeah. But, you know, th this is really, I, I think the idea, you know, I've, I've long been a, a fan of expanding the gene pool. You know, you have to have lots of different kinds of people at the table uh, to get a good result. You know, now maybe they need a certain foundational uh, training, like all engineers, or, you know, in order to solve a certain kind of problem, or maybe you need different perspectives sometimes. And, and that's kind of the leader's job is to figure out, you know, when you need to have a room full of engineers or when you need to have a bunch of different disciplines in the room and, and different things require different things. So um, awesome, awesome, uh, awesome observation. Thank you for sharing that. So what are some of the things that you see that, uh, you know, create an innovation culture that really help companies be successful? Well, you know, to in effect return to this whole notion of, of how we think so we become, which is the whole foundation of the, the motivation movement, right? I think that's right out of Ecclesiastes or some part of the Bible, but it's Isaiah, I think it is. But it's, it's really, uh, it was the, the fostering of uh, Earl Nightingale and all these great motivators. Uh, you had Mark Victor Hansen on your program just recently, and we all sort of drank from that same cup, which is the, the law of manifestation, right? We create our own reality, and, and that has certainly been the case. But I, I'm just going to double back and share a little anecdote because, you know, out and about, you and I hear all sorts of crazy things, and I try to write it down. And so the other day, well, okay, we speakers say the other day, this was, it was several years ago, but I worked with a uh, major call center company in the uh, state of Ohio. It doesn't matter their name, but one of the first things that the uh, – my contact person said to me as I entered the premises there to do a consulting assignment with this company is, you know, Robert, you've got to understand something. You know, the, uh, the uh, call center business is a commodity, right? And I was over working with the Spring Manufacturing Institute at their annual meeting in Savannah. And uh, the lady on the phone said to me, well, I hope you can help our guys, but you know, around here we have an expression. I said, what's that? She said, a spring is a spring is a spring. <laughs> I thought, holy cow. If a spring is just a commodity, you know, it's this thing that goes bouncy bounce, then maybe these guys will not be able to really receive my message. I started getting a little nervous. So I called her back and I said, hey, could you give me the name of your 10 most successful spring manufacturers, right? ABC Spring Company in Idaho and ABC, you know, XYZ. And, and I called each and every one of those CEOs because I was worried. And I, you know, in the course of the conversation, I said, and by the way, is a spring just a spring a spring? Nothing you can do to differentiate it? And they about fell off their chair uniformly saying, absolutely, are you crazy? The margins that we're getting on our springs because we do X and Y and Z. I mean, one of them said, we've let our customers tell us that a spring is just a spring is a spring. We're doing all these innovations over here, Robert, but do not share, share what I'm telling you with my colleagues at the meeting in Savannah, right? <laughs> they forbid me 
And so in the meeting, I still remember it. They were like poker faced, right? Because they wanted, they did not want me to share anything that they were doing. But they did not have the mindset that a spring is a spring is a spring. We have to break that mindset, right? We have to identify what are the uh, assumptions that are holding us back, right? We got to assault those assumptions. I worked with Nokia back in 2006. Oh, that my. Year, this is, <laughs> yeah, I'm going, I'm an old guy, you know, 67 freaking years old. But, <laughs> uh, but as young as a 25-year-old in my mind. But, uh, but Joel, the, uh, the, the Nokia assignment was, was memorable, and I'll tell you why. That year, they were number eight on the world's most innovative companies list. They were riding high. They, they sent me all over Asia, and I, I'd done quite a bit of work with them. But they said, we want you to come up to Palo Alto and speak at our leadership conference. These are top 50 movers and shakers. These are what they call high potential managers. They're on the way up to the top. This was a company on fire. I mean, they were unstoppable, right? And so I did something during that for prepping that meeting that I normally do, which is a brief survey, five question survey. One of the questions was, I said, what are the barriers to innovation at your company? And I half expected that that question would be left blank when they sent it back, right? Just, hey, you know, we're Nokia, buddy. <laughs> we don't have any barriers to innovation. But instead, I got back, we're a risk adverse culture. Uh, we don't have time to work on our ideas. You know, basically operational mindset dominates those kind of usual suspects, if you will. And uh, I'll never forget the meeting itself where I'm speaking to these top 50. And I happen to ask them a question that day. I said, you know, if I work for you, and these, they flew in from all over the world, literally, because Nokia was and is um, still, you know, a global company. They've moved more into infrastructure and moved out of handsets. But I said, you know, if I work for you and I have an idea, what do you want me to do with it? And this one guy, I never forget, he stood up, he said, you know, Tucker, he said, I would just tell you to forget about it. You're just going to frustrate yourself in this company. You're just going to bang your head against the wall. You're not going to get anywhere. We are so operationally minded that, and I, I, I thought, Holy cow. And there were a few gasps, you know. This so, so, Robert, how, so how do you explain that Nokia is uh, identified as the number eight innovation company in the world, in, you know, 15 years ago, uh, right. you know, and, and they have all these internal problems that are absolutely contrary to what innovative companies typically uh, would do? Was it like a one hit wonder? They just got lucky with a couple of products and, or, or what, what do you think it was? No, they were very, very good at execution. They were very, very good at operational mindset. They were very, very good at expansion all over the globe, right? They went into India and they made cell phones smaller and smaller, but they were in a box. They were in a mental thinking box that was not evident to me, not evident to them at that time, right? But one year after that seminar, Apple introduced the iPhone. And Nokia began its spectacular fall from grace from that moment, Joel. And I, th I always think back on that, right? Because I'm supposed to be the guy that's going to warn them, help them to think ahead of the curve, blah, 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 blah. But I didn't see it, and neither did they. But when I see that, that list, and I use this as a, as a chart in my slides to this day, uh, about all of their barriers, 
I hold those up to CEOs and I say, do these barriers characterize your company? And if they say, yeah, I kind of do, and most of them do, then I say, well, aren't you vulnerable just like Nokia was? Do you think you're in some sort of safe harbor? The world is changing. So we've got to assault our assumptions. We've got to make it okay to push back when that guy says, you know, call centers are a commodity. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's commodity thinking. You, it's wrapped around your brain here, right? You'll never get anywhere until you uh, divest yourself of that. Well, I'll tell you what, man, that uh, to me, I just heard it right there. The word assault assumptions. That's to me, that's the inside track. That's the best, smartest and fastest way to get anything done. If you want to be innovative, if you want to make progress, if you want to move to uh, whatever your next level is, you have to assault all of the assumptions that you have going backwards. And, you know, I heard you say a couple of things that just made a lot of sense to me. One is that, you know, you have to have a culture that uh, embraces ideas. And, and that's a critical thing. I heard you say that uh, you have to have a mindset uh, that, you know, is is open to new ideas and, you know, like that commodity mindset thing. I mean, that, I don't know if people like that can be changed or adjusted. I mean, it, they just get run over by competitors who have a better mindset. And then the Nokia thing is like the missing link. There was a missing link that, uh, that they had. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it's interesting. So, uh, these have all been uh, outstanding. Uh, I, I love all this stuff, and that's why well, you're, this, uh, you're you know, where you are. The, all of these companies that are no longer with us, right? I mean, it seemed to, over the last three years, I was kind of specializing in working with those kinds of companies, you know, that are being disrupted, heavily disrupted. And, you know, it took me a long while to be able to ferret out our thinking ruts, that didn't just come naturally, right? But I started it my life as a journalist and uh, always asking questions and then kind of cross-checking with, you know, ask the same question to a group of people and it's really an empowering kind of thing. And I, I began to see how some people's thinking was what was shooting them in the foot, if you will. And they didn't know it and they were good people. I mean, these Nokia guys, they whined and dined me. I mean, they sent me on some of the greatest journeys of my life. And, and I don't want to be speaking out of school with these folks, although probably most of them are working at different companies now. But, or I, and I certainly don't want to give the impression that they were dumb bunnies. These were, you know, like Mensa quality. Uh, oh, people, God, right? absolutely. Right? But, but that's not enough. Hey, let me, let me ask you, let me ask you a question, a related question. Um, uh, you know, it is really hard to continue to innovate, 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 and, and stay ahead of the curve. It's really, really hard. You got your business to run, plus you got to be innovative, and you got these little teeny upstart companies in garages that are, you know, aiming torpedoes at your company all the time. So can you think of any examples of companies that have just reinvented themselves over and over and over and have stayed ahead of the curve? Are there any companies that are – I mean, Nokia was the example of, of like – the most unfortunate thing that could happen. Have you run into any ones that are just spectacular? Oh, I run into them all the time. And I, you know, right now I'm prepping for work with a, a client in the state of Georgia. And so I'm, I'm very Georgia focused, but a lot of them are unsung heroes. They don't appear in fortune magazine or get written up in business week, but they're out there and they're kicking tail, even in this very trying time that we're living in. But one that comes to mind in reference to your 
question is Jeff Bezos. And, um, you know, Amazon is a company that I hate and I love. I, uh, I try not to use them. I try to go to the corner bookstore or put my order there, call my order in and pick up the book. It's a little less convenient. But I want Chaucer's books here in Santa Barbara to survive. And I know if I don't support them and buy my books through them, then they will go out of business. And I don't want that, right? Yeah. So that's the downside of Amazon. But the, the upside of Amazon is Jeff Bezos' brain and the way he thinks. He said in an interview, he said, we invent by starting with the customer and working backwards. He said, the other guys, they start with, hey, you know, Joel, if we do this idea, how much are we going to make on it? What's the margin going to be? You know? No. No, 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 no. That's the way that accountants and engineers think. That's right. Is they, they, they invent solutions to problems that they don't even know what the problem is. <laughs> that's right. And, and not to throw all accountants and engineers, because I know some very innovative engineers. Yeah, of course. Some of very course. innovative accountants, right? I mean, I work, once worked with Enron. <laughs> <laughs> those, guys, those guys were innovative, all right? <laughs> I seriously did. Now, they, at the time I worked with Enron, they were a great group of people. They went off the cliff. That's another story we'll tell another time. But, yeah, I mean, they were, they were doing some serious innovation and, uh, you know, a lot of great people. But uh, things can happen. Listen, Robert, you're uh, you're a stellar guy. You're a nice friend. I'm delighted to have you as a friend, and, and thank you for sharing the inside track on some of this innovation. I, I just love the uh, assault assumptions. Uh, it just is. Uh, it's just so perfect. I think that if there's one giant concept that comes out of this discussion, that's really what it is: is that you really have to attack all of the assumptions that you have uh, and really grab them and and shake them, grab them by the collar, and give them a good hard shake and and see what survives. So thank you for being on the show. And listen, man, thanks for being my friend. And I look forward to being able to get back in person and debating some of this stuff in person. <laughs> well, so do I. And, All right, uh, man. Well, listen, I'm thanks for being on the show. You bet, Joe. Take care. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.